seats. You're already seated. You're fine. Sure. Go ahead and grab a seat. Pull up a chair. Get rid of those great conversations I know you're having. I know all those wonderful conversations are happening. All right. All right. How is everybody doing tonight? Nick's here, Annie's here. It's great. I'm excited to be here. Uh, if you came here expecting Sean, I'm a little taller and significantly less forearms than he is. Uh, but Sean is not here tonight. Uh, he is out of town. But welcome to Grafted. We love having you here. And if it's your first time here with us, I'm glad you could make it. Uh, we here are about one thing, and that's helping college students know Jesus Christ, whether that's your first time, or your 101st time, or your 1,001st time. We want to help college students know Jesus Christ. Uh, if you don't know who I am, I'm Ryan. I have the privilege of serving here in college ministry, uh, and I'm just really grateful to be able to up here and, and preach the word to you tonight. And as we're opening our time here tonight, I want to ask you a question. What would you do if you knew you had a limited amount of time to live? Many people kind of call it a bucket list, things you want to get accomplished, experiences, places, things you want to do before you die. You know, right? Confirm, yes, you know, a bucket list, right? Well, recently on YouTube, uh, Dude Perfect started a bucket list series. Uh, their first one was a three-day cruise on the USS Nimitz. Those of you who know me and my love for naval ships, I'm really mad at them right now. But they're starting this series. But, but let's think of it in your head. What would you do, your bucket list? What, what's that list of places that you would go to? Maybe here in the U.S., maybe not. I know I get to go to two this summer. I get to go to Israel and Ireland. It's going to be fun. But think of that list. What are those places you'd love to go visit? Maybe your list is more about accomplishments, milestones, land that dream job, have your own car or house, get married, have kids, have X number of kids, retire by X age. What are those milestones you want to hit? Maybe it's more about experiences that you want. A restaurant you've never visited, you always wanted to go to. Or maybe you're a little more adventurous than me, something like skydiving or jumping, bungee jumping. No. Now, now keep that list in your head. With that list in your head, just think, how much effort are you putting into to those items, to actually accomplishing them? Probably not as much as you could, right? They're just kind of there. We're still kind of young for the most part. It seems as though we have our whole lives ahead of us to do these things. So how would it change if you said you have five years to live? How about if you had one year to live? Six months. One month. 
How would your effort change towards those things if you had a limited time to live? That date is getting closer and closer and closer. In the same way, what we know about the future should cause us to live like there is no tomorrow. Open up your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to see that we need to live like there's no tomorrow. Now, if you've been with us on Friday nights, we're taking a little break from our study of Revelation. Uh, but we're still looking at the end times, just from a different book, different passage, just not Revelation tonight. And while you're turning there, I want, you to, I want to ask you a question very much the same as we kind of in, entered with. What are you living for? What are you striving for right now? Now, I ask that because it is really easy to get sucked into what the world has, what it, what it says that we should live for. That we often see that they say live like there's no tomorrow, but that's not really what the way Scripture says it. It's more try to earn as much money, have as much experience, have as much fun as possible with the time that you have at the moment. And you probably feel this pressure as well from coworkers, students, professors, all those around you. Now, their whole pushing, don't waste your life, you know. And while I agree that we shouldn't waste our lives, I don't think that we often see what Scripture has, that it's such a much bigger thing to live for. We're to live like there's no tomorrow because... There is that God-ordained day coming when there isn't another tomorrow. But when that day of eternity is realized. I believe we're going to see that clearly tonight. So let's read 2 Peter chapter 3. Drop down to verse 10. This is where we're going to spend our time tonight. 2 Peter 3, 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Let's take a quick step back here. For those of you who haven't been with us Sunday mornings, we've been going through the book of 2 Peter, uh, and it's very much about going after false teachers, calling them out on the ways they've been ravaging the church in that time, as Peter's writing in his final years on earth. Now we see in chapter 2, Peter goes right after them. But he assures those who are being ravaged by those same false teachers, their destruction is coming. It's imminent. He reassures them that that day for them is coming. I'm going to read chapter 3, verse 3 through 9 real fast. Because it leads right up to what we see in, in, chapter, uh, in verses 10 through 13. Read along in your Bibles as I read it aloud. Verse 3 says, know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. 
For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the judgment, for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape you, escape your notice. Beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So Peter's point here is that those who don't see that coming day of judgment, they fail to recognize that not only that God created the world, that he's already destroyed it once. It's already happened once. Now it's just going to happen again. Also, they fail to see that God is not like us. He's not slow to fulfill promise, but his motive is so that more may be saved. It's actually his mercy that is pushed on longer, longer, and longer. And it's right on the heels of that that we see where our passage here is in 2 Peter 3, where we see that we need to live like there's no tomorrow. And in order to do that, we need to see three mindsets we must embrace to live like there's no tomorrow. So... Let's dive in right now. Point number one, recognize the impending judgment. Recognize the impending judgment. Jump back up to verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be dissolved, will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Now, day of the Lord, it's a phrase that pops up a lot in the Old Testament, especially. Uh, it happens 23 times in the Old Testament and five times in the book of Joel alone, which is quite a lot for a book that only has three chapters. Uh, ultimately, that book is about the coming judgment. Now, we haven't gotten much into this yet, but the, the day of the Lord pretty much is summed up in Revelation 6 through 20. This kind of... Yeah, it's a lot of chapters in Revelation. It's a large portion. And we could say we could sum it up in these two main events. The Great Tribulation and the, the coming Millennial Kingdom. Those are basically the two events that sum up this day of the Lord. This coming day of judgment. We don't have time to really dive too much further into those, so we'll leave it there. But hold a spot in Second Peter and turning your Bibles to Joel 2. If you have no idea where Joel is, open up to Psalms and turn nine books to your right. In the crispiest portions of your Bible, probably. This book is all about the day of the Lord. Like I said, it's mentioned five times alone in this book. With only three chapters. It's the theme of this book. Joel 2, start up there in verse 1. Joel 2, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. 
As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be any again after it, to the years of many generations. A fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them. And nothing at all escapes them. Now, it doesn't sound particularly like a good day, does it? Not particularly uplifting of a day. And as it says, there will not be anything like it beforehand or anything like it after. This is a big day. This is the coming of judgment. But it's not just enough that it's coming. Flip back to Second Peter. I hope you held your place there. How is this day coming? How is this day of the Lord coming? It's coming like a thief. It's coming at a time that's unexpected. A time that's unknown. Now, even the most well-prepared person who has three guns under every bedroom is not expecting someone to break in. It's still a shock when it happens. Even though they're prepared, they didn't know when it's going to happen. See, the person who's prepared for the break-in, it's certainly surprising, but they were ready when the time came. They had taken time to prepare for it, whatever it might be. Whenever it might be. So what are you going to be doing when that day comes? Are you prepared for it? Are you going to be caught off guard and surprised by it? What does this day bring? It's a cataclysmic event. It's really awesome, like awe-inspiring. It's huge. The, the word heavens here is not talking about where God dwells, but more you look up at the stars, the planets, the heavens, the, the bodies beyond this earth. The, the entire universe, in essence. The, the billions of stars, planets, comets, asteroids, all of it ending with a roar. All of it. You could also say it was with a cracking, like that sound you hear when you have wood in the fire and it's, it's breaking under its own, when it's burning, it's cracking and breaking. It's that same idea that the, the universe is breaking and cracking under the own, its own weight of destruction. Like that fire word, except it's the universe cracking, breaking, roaring as it's ending. The universe coming to an end and all it can do is just crack under this epic event. Not only that, but we see further in verse 10, the elements are going to be destroyed with intense heat. Now that, that word for elements, I'm going to nerd out on here you for a second, stoicheon. It's referring to more so the building blocks of the universe. The very elements that you'd see on the periodic table, those are breaking apart. Now here's a quick example. You've probably all seen in your history class at some point in the last 10 years. The atomic bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki had a uh, bomb called uh, Fat Man dropped on it in World War II. Uh, instant widespread destruction in a flash. Just wiped out miles, 
instantly. Now you may not know that the, the USSR in the heat of the Cold War developed a bomb called the Sarbomba, which was 3,000 times stronger than the bomb dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. 3,000 times. It broke windows nine, 500 miles away in Norway when it was test detonated. But that's just caused from a few atoms splitting. You know, in light of the grand scheme of the universe, that's a couple atoms splitting. Imagine the destruction when all of the atoms just dissolve. That's what the day of the Lord brings. The elements are literally dissolving. They are ceasing to exist because of the judgment coming from God. This day is nothing to scoff at. The very building blocks of the universe are being undone. The very the earth and its worth will be burned up. Just in case it wasn't clear, everything is going to be burned. The earth's works. Think of all the achievements earth has done, man has done. Burned up. Wasted. Modern medicine, going to the moon. Think of all those huge achievements. They're going to be made nothing. Worthless. Burned up. What achievements are you pushing towards? Are you pushing towards achievements that are ultimately going to be burned up, laid waste? Are you investing in a world and a system that will ultimately, ultimately be laid bare before the judgment of the Lord? That's a really intense picture of what coming judgment is. It's not a, a light picture. But it's when we recognize that proper view of what is really coming that we can embrace the second mindset. Number two, resolve to live honorably. Resolve to live honorably. We're moving into verse 11 now. We're no, we're no longer just stuck in verse 10. Let's read it again. Verse 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Now remember, all that we just went through, the, the very thing that Peter first points out in this sentence, it, it's since, in, therefore, in light of. Because of what we just saw in verse 10, we need to respond accordingly to that. Therefore, since. Now, why should you remember? Because Peter asked a question of you. What sort of person should you be in light of coming judgment? Now, it's kind of a rhetorical question. It's not really an answer, and if there is, it's one. You should be holy. You should be godly. In light of coming judgment... You should live in this way. Philippians 1.27 says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of, the, of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. 
Now, especially in these last days, especially in these last days, how much more should we be showing to a world that is headed for destruction? The world is set out for destruction. We know this. So we ought to live in a manner that proclaims the gospel. Peter's really getting after the heart. After everything's going to be destroyed, what are you doing that's not going to be? What are you doing that won't be burned up? What are you doing that will last to eternity? Holy conduct and godliness are important because they will go with you into eternity. They're not going to be burned up. These should mark you. They should be the very defining qualities of you. So let's break them down real fast. First, holy conduct. This is more simply summed up and this is your outward actions. How you are carrying yourself. How you act toward those around you and in an onlooking world. How you conduct yourself is incredibly important because your deeds are going to be tested. Those deeds that are fleshly, that are sinful, they'll be burned up. They'll be laid waste. But the ones done for the Lord, no matter how small, no matter how insignificant, those will last the test of time. Those will make it to reward in the coming future. But it's not only how your conduct affects you, but also how it affects others. We can encourage those around us, help in times of need, and celebrate with those who need it and mourn with those who also need it. But again, it's not solely for the purpose of the church, to to building up those around you. But that you should keep your conduct holy amongst a world that isn't. In, in Peter's first letter, he writes this in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. What's it saying? Don't leave them with an excuse. Don't leave them without an example of what it means to follow Christ. You have through your life shown that God is awesome and is a great God. Sure, none of us do it perfectly. Not a single one of us. None of us would admit to that. We all know we fall short. But that's not what I'm saying. What's your life look like? What should the trajectory of your life look like? What's its general direction? Are you seeking to be more like God, like Christ every day? Or is it just declining? And you look more and more like the world. Christians are called to holy conduct. So let's ask a tough question. What are you known for? Do parents see you as disrespectful? Coworkers or bosses see you as lazy? 
Friends just see you as the popular or cool person? Does the world see you as one of its own? Or does it see something that's antithetical to it, that's complete opposite? Does it see grace where there isn't? Does it see mercy where there isn't? Does it see love where no one else would? Your conduct should be holy, set apart from the world's conduct. Second, we have godliness. Godliness, where the conduct, holy conduct, is the outward actions. Godliness is focused on the inward, your character, the actions of the heart. Godliness is an internal working of the heart, not merely an external action. It isn't simply a good attitude. It is a God word attitude. An attitude that focuses and looks toward Christ. A heart that seeks to please the Lord. A heart and character devoted to him. It is a focus on the things of your character, this godliness. Those things that define you as traits. Now, we all want to have good character, right? There's benefits to it, not just in this area, but in life there's benefits to having good character. But when, when you sit and, exam- and examine, how is it looking? How's your character look? What character traits define you? What are your strengths? What do you struggle with? What your character is 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 very evident when no one is watching. When no one is there to say that's wrong or commend you. What do you do when no one's looking? The boss isn't here. I could either slack off or or, you know, catch a little bit of extra rest. I mean, no one's going to know. What's your response? Or you see that and you're like, no, I should work hard. Because God calls me to work hard. Even if the boss isn't here. How do you handle that situation? Which person are you? Now, many of you already know the verse, but I want to read the, the fruit of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit from Galatians 5. Now, just take a moment, kind of hear this. Examine your own hearts. Galatians five nineteen. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousies, outbursts of anger, Disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Which of these define you? More spirit? More flesh? Mix of both? I feel like we're all in that last category. What, what struggles are on this list? What strengths are on this list? How can you this week be fighting for the fruit of the spirit and fighting against the fruit of the flesh? Do you seek others to challenge you? Challenge those areas you know you're weak in. 
we ought to be having godliness about us. As we keep moving into verse 12, we've looked at these attributes that we should be. But as we move farther, we see two actions we should take as well that, that are part of being resolved. Let's read back through verse 11 to catch these. Verse 11, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Now at the end of the verse, we see that, inter- that reiteration we've basically already looked at in verse 10. Uh, the coming judgment, the end of the, the physical universe as we know it. But instead of just glancing over, I, I just want to stop and pause. Let's dwell on this for a moment. This is the second time Peter has made a point about the coming of the end of the world. It's not just a coincidence. It's not just somebody adding it in there. He's making a point. The end is coming. Plain and simple. If it didn't come from the first point, you get it now. The end is coming. That date is set in the future. Won't be changed. And it's coming. I think it's really important to remember that. Peter's making a really big deal about it. The end is coming. Back to the actions. We are to be looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. First, we are looking for, or you could also say that we are looking toward that day. Our eyes are focused on that coming day of God. It's not your physical eyes. You're not staring up into the sky waiting for it to come. It's the eyes of your heart. What is your heart focused on? It's to take your eyes, your, your heart, and focus it on that coming day. Focus it on that day set in, in the future. Now we see this similar idea in 1 Peter 1.13 as it says, Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now the main, main thought being fix your eyes on that day. Fix the, your eyes on the day it is coming. Have that mindset that is locked on to the future. Much like Hebrews 12 where they see fix your eyes on Christ to endure. We need to be fixing our eyes on the day of God because it will help us live and motivate us to live holy. Second action, hastening. Hastening in verse 12. Hastening, making it come quicker, making it more ready. Now, Hastening, this whole idea is, this is not solely about yourself. This is not all inward focus. This is not all what I need to work on, what I need to do, what I need to work in my own character, my own heart. No, but hastening is this idea, you have a mission to do. Now, I mean, if if our sole purpose was to worship God, the second you get saved, up into heaven. Because you ain't worshiping him better down here than you are up there. No, we have a mission here. Think of the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples. We have a mission here. And this idea of hastening that day of God, hastening that's coming. 
the idea being you are being used as a tool to bring people to salvation. It's not you who do it. It's God who does the work, but you get to be a part of that. You get to, in the very classic analogy, help someone else get back on the bus. Because once it's full, we're taken off. Once that last seat is filled, we're going. Be a part of that. Be hastening the day of God. And day of God. It's not, this day is not the same as the day of the Lord. There's a little bit of a distinction. The whole idea being the day of the Lord is the, the coming of judgment. The day of God is the coming of the eternal state. Heaven and a new earth forever. The, the, in essence, the day of the Lord ends and the day of God begins and goes on for eternity. The heaven that we have been waiting for is now realized. And that leads us right into point number three. Remember the coming promise. Remember the coming promise. Verse 13. But according to his promise, we are looking for, a, for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I'm going to geek out on you here for a second because I just think this is so cool in text. That, that word new is not chronological. It's not like sequence of time. No, it's new as in kind, new type, completely new, redone. It's not the 2014 car model slapped with a 2015 and sent onto the floor with nothing changed. It's like you went from a Honda Civic to like a Dodge truck. Like it's completely different. New, in my opinion, better than... <laughs> Sorry, Civic owners. <laughs> this idea that it is completely new. Not just new in time, but new in quality. We have a different place to look forward to. A much better one. A much bigger place to look forward to. Now, I want you to turn over to Revelation 21. If you wanted to wait until the end of the semester to read the end of Revelation, sorry, spoiler alert, we're going to go there now. But, but turn over to Revelation 21. And I just want to read some, some chunks out of this. We're, this is the, the coming promise. The, the most clear passage we'll see on the coming heavenly kingdom, the coming heaven, the coming earth. So Revelation 21, starting in verse one, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God made ready as a bride adorned from her for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And then he said to me, 
It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This whole idea, the old things are done away with. The first order, death, pain, suffering. It's gone. All of it. Wiped away as, it, as if it never existed. It's completely done. And now even here, God dwells with what was a sinful people. He makes his tabernacle among men. A holy God now dwells with men. It's crazy. A couple verses farther down. Revelation 21, 22. I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God has illuminated, illuminated, illumined it. And its lamp is the lamb. There's not even a need for, for a temple anymore. There's not a need for a place to go worship. Because God's there. He dwells in the new Jerusalem. He is there. You spend eternity with God. Not only that, but the crazy thing. There's not even a sun anymore. Because God radiates his glory, shining the whole place. Who needs that little speck of fusion in the solar system? God's going to light up the whole city. There's no need for a temple or even a sun. Revel uh, one more chapter. Revelation 22, verses 1 through 6. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of the street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his bond servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night. And they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun. Because the Lord God will illumine them. And they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And he and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must take place. And behold, I am coming quickly. This place is just, you read these passages and you're just in awe of what is coming. You may have seen it. The last time we saw the tree of life, Genesis 3. Before Adam screwed everything up. It's in heaven now. The tree of life is brought back into focus. This, this place is just so immense, so awe-inspiring. Again, there's no need for light. There's no need for temple. 
It's so good to see this. We will see the face of God, the face that no man can look on and live. No man can look on and live. Heaven? Yup. It is such an amazing promise. This is our coming promise of heaven. But there's one more coming promise. And this one's kind of antithetical to it. Now, as great as the promise of heaven is, the, the promise of the second place is significantly the opposite. If you're still in Revelation, you may turn a couple chapters back. Revelation 20. The second place that's promised. Most people call it hell. Revelation 20, verse 11 says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from, the, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is a second equally as powerful promise. There's only two outcomes, two promises. And it's for two different type of people. Those who have their name written in the Lamb's Book of Life and those who do not. Those who have bowed the knee to Christ, who have seen him and need, is their need for a savior, their need for washing of their sin, and those who do not. Those who stand in open rebellion saying, I will make my own way. Those who stand there and, and see the offer of Christ and say, no thanks. There's a promise for them as well. It's not a good one, unfortunately. There's still hope as there is. You still live crying out to God for repentance, for the need of a savior. But there's only one of these two promises. You only get one. You either get the promise of seeing the face of God in glory, in being amongst the redeemed saints of all eternity, or separation from him for all eternity, bearing the full weight of your sin and judgment. There is only one of two places. Be sure you're going to the right one. Be sure that you are set going to a place of blessing and happiness and joy and peace. One final exhortation I want to give you because it's, we talk all this time about the end and it oftentimes seems far off and it can be really hard to wait and see that long term. James 5, 7 through 8. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. 
The farmer waits for the produce, the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is near. Strengthen your hearts because the coming of the Lord is near. Live like there's no tomorrow because the coming of the Lord is near. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for your word, giving us clear instruction on that we should live in light of eternity, that we need to have an eternal mindset about what we are doing, that our actions have eternal consequences, Lord. And Lord, I pray that tonight we would recognize that your word calls us to living a life of holiness, a life of godliness, to, to look towards and hasten that coming day. Uh, Lord, that we would live in light of the coming of the end of the world. And Lord, it's often a terrifying thing to think of, Lord, but Lord, we should see the coming of the end and say, Hallelujah, Maranatha, Lord, come, because the promise of heaven is coming. Lord, we thank you that you give us that promise. Lord, that we have your face to see, your promise to look forward to. Lord, may that impact how we live our lives today, tonight, this week, and the rest of our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.